immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come. Jesus said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt and when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Good morning. Welcome to Rogue Grace on this Thursday morning here in March. Happy St. Patrick's Day, in other words. I hope you didn't forget to wear green. I did, so I'll be on the lookout. But anyways... Look at this story. When you're focused on your ability to come to the Lord, you never will. That's one of the great lessons of this story of Peter trying to walk upon the sea. As long as he was focused on Jesus, he was able to rise above it. It's when he focused on his own walk, he began to sink. Man, do I know that feeling. Do I know that from experience? The more I am focused on my own walk, the faster I will sink into despair, into depression, into self absorption, I've got to keep my eyes on the finished work and on the Son of God in order to keep my feet, myself above it. See, when you're not focused on yourself at all, but the one who rises, who rose above it, it's the difference. In any given moment, between sinking and swimming, it has nothing. See, be, the difference between sinking and swimming has nothing to do with what you are doing, 
but where you are looking. As Peter looked to Jesus, he stepped over that which otherwise would have sunk him. Now, the law says, look at yourself. Thou shalt, you shall examine, look at, be introspective. Yes, indeed, Paul says, examine yourself in the book of 1 Corinthians, but he does so in context of not of good works, not of your behavior, but are you receiving the goodness, the glory, the power of God? First Corinthians tells us. So the law says, look at yourself, but grace says, look to Jesus. That's all faith is. All faith is, in my opinion, is looking at Jesus. Not at yourself, looking at him, admiring him, enjoying him, being in awe of him. So that so much so you are not even aware of yourself. The law says you can't walk on water. You can't do that. The law of hydrodynamics. Grace says nothing is impossible. The law says stay in the boat. The laws of nature don't get out of the boat, Peter. Don't even come close to sinking. Don't get out of the boat, it says to you and me. Don't even come close to sinning. Grace doesn't say stay in the boat. Grace says come unto Jesus. And even when Peter began to sink, you got to give him credit. He cried out, to the Lord. It says when he was beginning to sink. I like that. Not after he was all the way in. When he was just beginning to sink. And Jesus didn't say to him, tough luck. You're sunk. You made your bed. Now sleep in it, as it were. He says, arise. He grabs him by the hand. Puts him in the boat. Oh, ye of little faith. I remember when I was watching my daughter play softball all those years in California. And watching those little kids play baseball and softball, leading off was interesting. You know, leading off is when, as you may know, the baseball or softball player reaches base and then they take a few steps off the base in order to get as much of a lead as they can towards the next base, even while the pitcher has the ball still, right? But you can't take too many steps off base or else the pitcher will throw it over and you'll get tagged out. And so they it was funny because the coach at first base or whatever would say, okay, lead off. And they would literally, I mean, I'm not joking. They would get one inch off the base. 
They didn't want to take any more of a lead than that. And I thought that can be so much like us. I don't want to lead off, step out. I don't want to live life. Not as a Christian. We're afraid to take risks, to step out. But I will say this, even Peter, who got all wet, right? The wetter Peter got, the closer he encountered Jesus the Lord. Because it was when he was wet, Jesus reached in to grab him. And you know what? I'm all wet sometimes. I don't do things beautifully very often. But I'm trusting that even the wetter that I get, the closer I will encounter Jesus as I make my way toward him. You thought I was worth saving So you came and changed my life You thought I was worth keeping So you cleaned me up inside
Wish I could sing with soul like that. But I can listen. Quote, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Proverbs 17 verse 7. You know that scripture, but might I say, can I bring it home a bit this morning? When it says a friend loves at all times, might I say there is no friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. Jesus loves at all times. Not sometimes, not even most times, all times. It's been said before, in prosperity, our friends know us. In adversity, we know our friends. In prosperity, our friends know us, but it's in adversity we know who our friends are. And after going back now to our story, after Peter denied that he even knew Jesus, he must have thought, of course he thought, it's over. Even after Jesus was risen, Peter was elated at that fact because of his love for Jesus. But when it came to him and his friendship, his relationship, he went back to fishing. He must have thought it's over. And Jesus, as you know, find him. And Jesus asks him, do you love me? And Peter says, yeah, like a friend. And Jesus says, I can work with that. Feed my sheep. A friend walks in when everyone else walks out. It's not based on performance. It's without condition. Do you remember the experience, the encounter that Jim Baker had at his lowest point? Christianity Today wrote about his experience many years ago. The re-education of Jim Baker. Remember that mess, that meltdown with him, the woman, his wife, the divorce. And then he was sentenced to 45 years in prison in 1987 for misusing nearly $5 million, but 45 years he was sentenced initially. And so if you remember that article or that story, a few months into that sentence, he's cleaning toilets. Now he's divorced. And he admits he was asking, is God gone as well? Is God gone too? And then one day, a few months in, 
the guard, when he was cleaning toilets, came and said, you need to get cleaned up. Didn't you know that Billy Graham is here to see you? The irony is this. Billy Graham had just been voted the most respected man in the world, according to one media source. The most respected man in the world had come to see the guy cleaning toilets, divorced, in prison. And when he walked into the area where the the reception was, Billy states that he couldn't even look up. He just looked at Billy Graham's shoes. And Billy hugged him and said, look up. And he did. And he said, I was your friend in good times. And now I am your friend in bad times. And even when he got out of prison, not 45 years later, very shortly after that, comparatively, Ruth Graham, Billy's wife, who just passed away, she sat Jim Baker in the front row of the church with their family that first Sunday after he was released. And he said, Billy Graham, I should say Jim Baker stated, she told the world that day that I was their friend. That's wonderful, isn't it? But I don't know where you've been, what you've done. You don't necessarily know where I've been or what I've done. One thing we do know. One thing we do know. A friend loves at all times. And a brother is born for adversity. And Jesus is that friend that sticks closer than a brother. I lean out on my own understanding. My life is in the hands of the maker of heaven. I lean out on my own understanding. My life is in the hands of the maker of heaven. I lean out on my own understanding. My life is in
Many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. You are familiar with that proverb, 1824. A person has a lot of people or partners or companions, they can come to ruin, but there is a friend that's closer than those companions, those partners, and that friend is known by the fact that he sticks closer than a brother, she sticks closer than a sister. Jesus says in John chapter 15, as you know, I no longer call you servants. I call you my friends. (laughs) That's what he said to his disciples. And somehow, some way, that's what he says to me and you. Jesus chose them not only to be his disciples, he chose his friends. (laughs) He chose those 12, didn't he? He chose who would be his friends as anyone can and does. From the thousands that were following him to 12 to be his friend. See, to be a friend, as you know, a real, a, a, an authentic friend, it's to the right person, not just to anyone, not just to everyone. Some people, 
don't understand. Some people think being a quote friend means that they are your boss. They're in charge. But a true friendship, there's an equal standing. And I'm not saying that I am equal to Jesus, not even close, but he views me in these kinds of ways as a friend, a friendship. I like what C.S. Lewis says, a friendship is born when someone says, you too? I thought I was alone. You too? I thought I was alone. That's when a friendship is born. You don't have very many of those, do you? You could count them on one hand. Jesus says, you are my friend to those 12. And he says the same to you and me according to the New Testament. I like how Peter responds to Jesus in various ways. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus fills Peter's fishing boat. Remember that? In one of their first encounters. And Peter, who is so convicted of his lack of trusting Jesus before that, comes back to the shore, kneels down and says, leave me, Lord. In many ways, leave me, Lord. I'm intimidated. I'm unworthy. The same thing happens when Peter's back in the boat again. Jesus had risen. Peter had known that. Peter had failed Jesus. Peter goes back into the boat. He is writing off their friendship, if you would. But Jesus fills the boat again. Remember that? But this time, Peter doesn't say to Jesus, leave me. Peter swims to Jesus. (laughs) It's the same miracle with a completely opposite response. What could have been a very awkward moment, Jesus completely diffuses. That's the kind of friend that he was to Peter. And now, through the New Testament, we find that's the kind of friend he is to us. As we read in Proverbs, there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother.
thinking, uh, maybe not, but maybe so. Pete, every single day here at 10 o'clock, you talk about the finished work. You talk about grace. You talk about rest. That's all good, Pete, but what about our works? And I would say to you, absolutely. Grace works. I mean, look at Jesus. I know you do. So look at Jesus. Look at, he accomplished so much in three and a half years, didn't he? It's safe to say, right? He changed the history 
of the world in three and a half years. But he was never in a hurry. That's my point. Is that as you rest in God's grace, you will accomplish more than if you were stressed in your flesh. You got to be cool like Christ. Like the temple, so to speak, which was outwardly busy, right? With the sacrifices and the washings and the ceremonies and the mosaic ordinances. You know how busy that temple was in Jerusalem, outwardly, but inwardly in the Holy of Holies, it was perfectly still. Lord, let that be me. Let that be us. Inwardly, perfectly at peace. So outwardly, we can do all that he has called us to do today. So much so that even says Jesus grew in grace. So it's more than just where sin abounds, grace abounds more. That's true. But if Jesus could grow in grace, he wasn't sinning at all. And yet he could still grow in grace. It doesn't just take sin to grow in grace. May you grow in grace. How? Knowing this. Nothing can be added to perfection. On the cross, Jesus cried out, Te telestai, or kala in the Aramaic, K-A-L-A-H. It means rest. Kala does. God worked so you can rest. That's why he planted Adam in the garden on the sixth day, the day right before the Sabbath, to rest. Yeah, work for sure, but rest. Don't add to the finished work. Don't mess with perfection. The law of Moses said in the Ten Commandments and in the law, the ordinances, work six days and rest. Then Jesus rose from the dead. Now grace comes and says, rest and then go to work. I'm talking to myself. I'm talking to you, perhaps. I think that learning to rest doesn't just happen once or occasionally. It happens every single day. I need to be reminded. I need to learn to rest. Not just physically. Not even just mentally but to spiritually rest in the finished work of the cross that you cannot add to perfection. And Jesus is perfection, and now you are in Jesus. That is the gospel. And that is why it's called good news.
Moses, have Aaron, your brother, brought to you from among the Israelites along with his sons so they may serve me as priests. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. Tell all the skilled men to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration so that he may serve me as a priest. Now, everything about the high priest has meaning, as you know. Speaking of, of course, Jesus, who is at the Father's right hand, who is not literally wearing an ephod or gems or a linen turban, but those things speak of a greater reality. And here in Exodus 28, as I just read, we read it is for dignity and honor, or as the King James, for glory and beauty. For glory and beauty. I wonder, sometimes it seems that people don't understand. To me, it seems that people don't understand that God likes beauty. (laughs) Look at the tabernacle, the fragrances, the priesthood. God likes beauty. Sin makes things ugly, but God loves beauty. So therefore, For example, in Colossians 1, it says, In Jesus Christ, all things consist. When Christ is the center, it is beautiful. And that is how God sees Aaron in the Old Testament as the priest and even greater, more impacting reality is that is how God sees us in our great high priest, Jesus, the Christ. Because here's why I say that, you know this, but in a sense, the priest here in Exodus and Leviticus, the priest for Israel was not in a sense for God, but for the people, because he is not representing God to the people. That's what a prophet would do. A prophet would represent God to the people. And so the prophet would be facing the people, so to speak. You know, he would be prophesying to the people, giving the word of God to the people, facing the people because he's representing God to the people. But the priest is representing the people to God. That is, the priest is facing God in the Exodus. His face is to God. He is representing the people. Now, why is that important? Because the prophets were a mess when it comes to their outward appearance so often. (laughs) I mean, you read their stories and you can see Ezekiel, Isaiah. I mean, interesting guys to say the least. Why? Because God doesn't need someone to represent him in terms of being 
perfect and beautiful for God himself is perfect and beautiful. And I appreciate saying that right now, because how often are burdens placed on Christians saying you represent God, you better be perfect and beautiful. Oh man, I blew it. I messed up. I'm not perfect and I'm not beautiful. Particularly, I'm not beautiful. But see, the priest faces God because the priest is representing the people to God. And for three years, Jesus was a prophet. When he returns again, he's going to be the king. But for the past 2,000 years, Jesus has been our priest, representing us in the presence of God. It's in our best interest to see him standing by and at the right hand of God. Therefore, like I said, everything about the high priest has meaning. And I devote this past 50 minutes to our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Whether you go to church on Sunday, whether you pay your tithe, whether I obey completely, whether your walk is as it should be, either way, Jesus Christ is the great high priest. Jesus Christ is perfect. Jesus Christ has conquered sin and death. Jesus Christ is worthy of my praise at this moment. You listening to my praise at this moment, and he's worthy of our praise in any and every moment. Thank you for tuning in to this Thursday edition of Rogue Grace. God bless you. Check out my website, peterjohncorson.com for today's devotional. I'll be typing that out next. Come on out tonight to our prayer meeting where we will be gathering and seeking God together in the upper room. It is a Holy of Holies experience. The Lord bless you and keep you. Bye.